just got back from what is to the geek world mecca. What? That was CES. <laughs> no. Here we go. Live from Studio 3B. Now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast. With Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Featuring musical guest Sting. The Rad Lab, Model Trains, and Cosmic Rays. We'll tell you about MIT's famed Building 20. The digital fingerprints for your music are more easily erased than John Dillinger's digits. We'll introduce you to the Spanish company BMAT, who's trying to round up the digital tracks so musicians actually get paid. Plus, join us live on location at the Music Fan Expo. Yeah, you sign autographs. I'll sit there and watch. Okay. <laughs> you hand me the pen. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. Misfits of science, ha, ha. Those wild and crazy scientific guys, I love them. Yeah, those misfits. I just came back from MIT in Boston. I was interviewing essentially the godfather of big data and social physics, Professor Sandy Pentland. Uh-huh. And I interviewed him in essentially MIT Building 20. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, but I think you're going to. Almost every major technological leap humanity has made in the last 150 years has come out of MIT. And in the last 70 years since the Second World War, every major technological leap has come out of Building 20. It's also known as the Rad Lab, where we invented, well, they invented, radar discovered cosmic rays. It's the building that housed one of the first... Any, uh, what's the term? Um, anechoic chambers? Yeah, okay, for testing uh, audio. Right. Uh, acoustics pioneer Leo, Leo Baranek had his research facility there. And Professor Amar Bose did his early research on loudspeakers there and eventually founded Bose Corporation as a result. But the neat thing for me as a computer geek was MIT's Building 20 was also home to the Tech Model Railroad Club. Oh, for God's sake. You, after that preamble, we talk about model trains? No, I'll tell you why we talk about Tech Model Railroad Club. Because what it was, was it was a group of geeks who were into model trains, but they were more interested in what was underneath 
the table than what was on top of it because you would have switches where the tracks would go off in different forks. You want to automate that kind of process. And so the geeks in 1960 were using pinball machine parts to build these analog-like computers. And ultimately, the Tech Model Railroad Club is responsible in part for inventing the microchip and creating the term hacking. Back in the 60s, when computers had so little memory, when you wrote a computer program, you had to make sure that it could fit in the memory that it had. So you would hack away at the programming code to make it smaller and more efficient. That is the original term, hacking. When we talk about hackers today, what we're actually talking about as far as the 1960s through the 1980s nomenclature is concerned is not a hacker, but a cracker. Okay. So, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, I'm being educated. C clearly not as interesting to you. No, no, I'm, I'm being educated on this. I, I didn't realize that. Building 20 doesn't technically exist anymore. In 1998, they raised it and replaced it with the Strata Center. But in April of 99, as they were going through the rubble, they discovered a full-sized elevator shaft enclosure, which had revealed elevator levels G and B1 through B5, leading to what was believed to be a previously concealed secret lab below the ground floor. <laughs> okay. Because the building was originally built um, during the Second World War to help the war effort, and that's, again, how we got radar. I stood underneath the very first radar dish. Oh, great. It's housed on top of a massive box, which is a time capsule that is not to be opened until 2053. Okay. And we haven't even gotten into my conversation with Sandy Pentland. No, no. It's just that you got the tour through the building in the secret room in the basement. Oh, my God. It was just like every geek's dream. Oh, okay. Yeah. Meanwhile, I was uh, throwing up and uh, having explosive diarrhea. Yeah. Yes, lovely norovirus conversation. Thank you for that. I was. Yeah, you're welcome. In the meantime, I got to talk to this big brain for my new upcoming documentary series, Futurhythmic. And we talked about some really interesting stuff. I, I showed him my phone. I said, if I could give you my phone and the phones of six billion other people around the planet... What would you do with that information? And he had some really interesting answers. Meantime, Alan, you found a company that listens to everything we're listening and keeps track of it all for the purposes of the music industry. Here is what the music industry desperately needs. A universal, comprehensive database of all songs. I thought it was called YouTube. Well, no. See, the problem is, and we'll get into this with our guests, is that we have, let's say with books, we have something called an ISBN number. And each book that is published has a unique identifying number that allows anybody to track it down throughout the ages, throughout the world. You would think that we would have something similar for music. And we kind of sort of do, but it's incomplete. And the problem with music is that every time you change a song, you actually change 
what how it needs to be registered and numbered because it's fingerprint changes these fingerprint changes so if you have the album version if you have the single version if you have any number of remixes if you have a cover of that song all these different versions require a new fingerprint and now that we're into the world of streaming it's extremely important that each individual song be accurately identified so the right holders get paid every time their song gets played. There have been all kinds of issues. Let's give me, I'll give you an example from somebody I heard within the music industry. Let's say uh, there is a Bob Dylan song called I Love You. Um, it's a very popular song, and when Spotify or whoever looks at their uh, logs at the end of the month, they see a song called I Love You. Uh, being played X number of times. They're going to assume, in many cases, that that particular song, I Love You, goes to was Bob Dylan's version, because that's what people would listen to. So they credit all the streaming royalties to that particular song. Wow. Uh, but there are probably thousands of songs called I Love You, and as a result, Bob Dylan is getting credit and money for those songs, even though it wasn't his song. Do you see what I'm saying? That's that's one complication here. So BMAT says that it tells everyone what music has been played so artists get the recognition they deserve. Even if it's a pop song on TV, a jungle track at a beach club, or a ukulele cover on a digital video stream. That's right. Okay, so did I did I encapsulate the problem? Yeah, yeah, well, that's part of the problem. There's, uh, But yes, there, there's such a huge degree of complexity in in the in the in the management of the copyright and and the the, the how how money flows from from uh, music users to music owners um, and and it's mainly due to metadata and and the flaws of the actual systems of identification. So joining us now is BMAT CEO Alex Loscos. He joins us from Barcelona alongside one of his engineers uh, on the digital team, Danny. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. We do have sort of an equivalent of an ISBN number for for music. It's called the IR, um, ISRC number, and but it's, it's nowhere near complete, correct? Well, the ISRC stands for uh, International Standard Recording Code. And it has to, it, it's a unique identifier for, for a sound recording. So it's, um, it's an identifier of uh, um, how you fixated the sound into um, a physical um, device. Um, this means every time you generate a new version, meaning a remix, or anything that changes the original sound, like for example, if you remaster, you would have to reassign a new eyes or scene. But if you don't touch anything from the original sound recording, you shouldn't. Now the problem is that eyes or see, um, it's been spreading across different uh, countries as a way also to um, drive copyrights into uh, uh, the sublicency of the copyright which means that eventually you can have one sound recording that in theory should have only one identifier with maybe 30 or 40 ISRCs, which shouldn't be the case, but uh, exists, exists one for US and one for UK and one for Canada and one for Spain and one for Italy. But yes, the, the, the concept of the ISRC is that it's an identifier 
for the sound recording. And then you have the ISW scene, which is yet... No, I, I, don't know, I don't know that one. What's that? <laughs> the ISWC is the unique identifier of a composition. So one ISWC can have multiple ISRCs because one single composition can have many different uh, interpretations of it. Um, but and, and there are many others, many other um, codes around uh, around music. There's the IPI, uh, which is for the performers. Um, there there are many, but the the most standardized ones I would say is the ISRC and the and the ISWC. So, are you trying to create some proper universal database hygiene? For identifying songs, is that what we're talking about? We started identifying uh, music uh, and reporting that to copyright organizations, so to help them uh, understand what was the music usage and that they could actually perform better tasks at um, with more accurate data when it comes to distribution. Uh, but eventually, what we have found is that actually the identification is something that it can be done. And, and it's sort of, we believe, will turn into a commodity. And what we've realized is that, that the actual problems um, lays on the, on, the, on, the, um, on the data that identifies who should be paid for that song, for that specific usage and that specific moment. And that's that's a very complex problem, and, and that's actually what yes we're trying to solve. Because I know uh, of some performing rights organizations who have a whole bunch of money sitting in an account someplace. They don't know how to assign the money to the appropriate rights holders because they can't identify them. Yes, yes, that that, that happens a lot. I'm I'm I'm, I'm we're we ourselves uh, musicians, and and I found myself. Um, unidentified works in, in my authoring society. So it's a very, 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 very common because I can tell you I'm not very popular. So <laughs> it's very common that you find uh, unidentified works in, in, uh, in the copyright, but it, it's, it's a, it's a difficult, it's difficult sometimes to, to know who you have to pay to. It's, um, there's, a, there's many problems, um, around, around this, uh, this challenge. Um, sometimes it's also hard to get the collaboration from even from the musician himself uh, to get the data in place at the right time and with the right quality. So it's it's a it's a very complex problem and, and it's uh, it doesn't have one one single point of failure, but it has many. Tell me about this technology's ears, though. How is it hearing that beach club track or that digital video stream or or something that's playing on a television? Okay, so essentially the technology that we use is called audio fingerprinting. Um, and you can think of this as any single description of a sound that allows you to identify when it's being played somewhere. The same way you don't need to have a full description of a human body to identify a person. You just need uh, a good enough representation of their fingerprint to be able to tell, okay, this person is this other person that was here before. But, okay, to maintain that metaphor, um, where are those eyes coming from? I, are, are in, in the, the ratings world of television and radio, we have these things called personal people meters, like little pagers that have microphones that are constantly listening to the world around it. How are you actively tracking that a club is playing a particular track? Well, we have uh, an amazing team that builds what we call the BMAT boxes and installs them all around the world. And those are our ears. We 
we're constantly recording, physically monitoring the music that's being played. So you, you're kind of like a, a super supranational version of Shazam. We're the big brother of music. <laughs> okay. Okay. All right. All right. All right. Okay. So, ha having said that, um, how do you get your boxes, your ears, into clubs and restaurants and in a variety of different venues? Because not everyone's a big fan of having Big Brother with an open microphone. So, for radio and television, is it sim is as simple as as to send machines everywhere in the world and to plug them into a power supply, internet, and an antenna. And we can capture then anything, any broadcast that any household could could be watching. So uh, we have thousands of machines um, distributed along um, across many different countries, and that's where we get our radio and TV. For clubs, it's true; it's it's an intrusive uh, mechanism because actually you have to get into the club and you have to actually. Um, somehow get the collaboration of the club owners because you need to plug the device, you need internet, you need to connect that to the mixing consoles. So how do you convince them to do that? So there are two types. What we have found is that there, we, have, we have identified two types of clubs. There is the music club, which is owned by someone that is actually a big fan of music and he's a music freak. And he likes the idea of being uh, having something that actually identifies the music and reports that to the copyright uh, organization that he's already paying to because that's not about finding clubs that don't pay but actually it's about making clubs that pay uh, make sure that the money they're paying goes to the musics to the musicians and the bands that are playing there let me step in here and 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 um, I'm going to explain it for for people who are listening when it comes to things like uh, pu uh, performing rights organizations. Every territory in the world has a performing rights organization. There are so many organ uh, there are so many companies, so many broadcasters who use music as a way of making money. They need to pay for the right to use that music. So in Canada, for example, we have something called SoCan, and what SoCan does is monitors radio stations and television stations and live performance venues and everything else and charges a fee for the music that is played in those public spaces. Now, radio, they, they have one formula, live venues, they have another. Um, public spaces like shopping malls and restaurants, they have another. They collect all this money and then using whatever magic that they have in their back office, they distribute that money to the people whose music has been played in public, right? Um so when we start, everybody has to do this. This is not you're required by law to do this. The idea being that if there is a club that isn't doing this, at some point they're at risk of getting sued. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So if I'm at a club and I'm paying a hefty amount of money on an annual basis for a performing rights license, I would certainly like to know that the money I'm paying is actually going to the people whose music I'm supporting. Exactly. 
I don't know. I mean, if I was a club owner, I would just be happy that I was meeting the bare minimum requirements. What's the incentive for me to ensure that Bob Dylan, to your example, is getting paid as opposed to Jane Smith, who came up with a different variation of a song with the same name? Well, where's the incentive for me to put a, a, a an listening box in my club? Well, you still have to report. Yeah, but I'm reporting anyway. Yeah, yeah but you're not. No, no, you're not reporting. You're, and it's inaccurate. No, no. Yeah, you're, you're reporting based on uh, the square footage of your club. That's usually how you, you pay the fee. Right. So I, I'm I, so unless I'm getting a discount, unless you're going to give me some incentive to put uh, a listening device in my club, uh, I'm just going to tell you, screw you. I'm paying the, the necessary fees based upon an agreed about arrangement already. So where's the incentive for me? And how about how about we ask BMAT that? <laughs> okay. So, yes, the incentive is actually that if you're um, a club supporting a local, a local scene, uh, imagine you play, I don't know, you play, you're specialized in uh, met gothic metal. Okay. Yes. Um, if you're supporting a local scene, um, it, it actually makes, um, it, it, there's an economic sense to that. Because your money will go to support that scene. And that scene at the same time will support your venue. So actually, if you close the cycle, if you close the, the economic loop, it actually makes sense. It reinforces the, the feedback does it cost me anything to put one of these boxes in my club no okay no so that's the incentive but but on the other side yes the other type of of, of profile we found is actually people that is not that much into the music loving um, business but it's more into the selling drinks business that that kind of profile uh, which is perfectly legit they don't really care that much on closing the loop or, or making sure that the money is going to the the authors they they are they are playing, but they're more concerned about the economics of um, as you say, do I have a discount if I if I and actually the answer for some societies is yes. If you if you actually you know, let us install uh, a device in your venue, you will have a discount on your licenses. Uh, and sometimes there's not, but it's mandatory. So actually, when we've signed the agreement with um, with the venues we we well i'm talking now as if i was uh, a, a performed organization but you can make it mandatory as well so there are ways of of you to incentivize this uh, this sort of uh, monitoring um but of course it goes without saying that actually there's a lot of of work that it has to be done to explain the project and to evangelize if you will the different uh, venues you want to put a machine to. Oh, and the amount of data that you can gather from doing something like this, I can't even imagine to begin how you could parse that to learn so much about music consumption. Well, what does your analytics tell you? Well, what is it that you can divine beyond just the simple, uh, this song was played at this time? Oh, well, you know, I'll, I'll, let me step in. I mean, if you know exactly what songs are playing where, I mean, you can use that data to create new charts. That are even more accurate than what you're getting from, you know, uh, you know, human being reporting on the ground. That's for one. You know, if 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 a a record is hot in a club, or a record is hot in a venue someplace, or a music song is hot in in, in some particular venue, then you know, a, a manager, a label, a, an agent can can hone in on that data and exploit it. Hmm. Yeah. 
to be honest we haven't we haven't exploited that much the data um in that sense but we know that the venues are are supposed to be the trendsetters in the in the music scene so um, a new band will first be played in clubs and then it will go to other like digital and broadcast but uh, how do you guys make your money <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly so how do we make our money so um we work with all different institutions in the music industry and organizations um even though we started originally working mostly with performing radicalizations so we work with more than 100 performing radicalizations uh, like as you want, as uh, you mentioned, uh, Soken. We don't work with Soken, but we work with a number of Sokens of the world, <clears throat> um, and um, they they helped us set up the monitoring network. Um, and from there, we started working with other type of companies. So we work now with um, a number of record labels, a number of. Uh, publishing uh, record um, music publishing companies uh, production music libraries we work now also with broadcasters imagine um, television that needs to report to soken what music have they played but actually they have not no they don't have a, a true incentive to do that so they would like to outsource that to anyone that can do a good job at a good price so we're we're helping broadcasters to um, report to perform radicalizations. We work um, with um, DSPs. Um, so we work with uh, we work with, with as many organizations um, that exist in the music industry are interested in the in the music data and the music usage. So because that, that that's the other, that's the, the fourth uh, area where we monitor, which is digital. And in digital, we cannot um, apply the same rules we do for broadcasts, or we cannot apply the same rules we do for venues. It's not about asking permission to go into the kitchen. And you need to get uh, the data from the from the YouTube or Spotify or Deezer themselves, and that's what actually um, is doing the Danny's team. They're working with all these millions and millions and millions of, of data that is, are coming in uh, on a daily basis and we're trying to process that on behalf of uh, copyright owners. Oh God, I can't even imagine how much data that is. But I think this is a really important thing because metadata and listening data is something that's been vastly underreported and a lot of people are not making the money they should. There's a lot of confusion about what songs are being played by whom. And uh, it's so easy to tweak a song with, you know, for example, a reissue that becomes a new ISRC number. And you've got, uh, you know, all these it just multiplies and gets weird. So I, I really hope I've been following this, obviously, for, for quite some time. And I know some people in the industry that have really been pushing for uh, this universal database or at least this 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 thing that will allow people to um, uniquely give every song a unique ID. And uh, I, I wish you guys all the best because it's only going to make the music industry stronger. Thank you very much. Alex and Danny from BMAT joining us from Barcelona. Thank you so much for, for having us. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. 
So we're off to the Music Fan Expo, Saturday, January 26th at the Mississauga Convention Center just outside Toronto. Yes, I did this, I think it was last year. And the idea is to bring a whole bunch of music fans together to talk about music. It's not a music industry thing. It's a music fan thing. So we'll be there with uh, doing the podcast. I'll be there signing autographs for anybody who cares. A number of other people, including Brian Byrne, who used to be with uh, I'm Mother Earth. We've had him on the show. And uh, Gord Depp from The Spoons, I think, is going to be there. We'll try and get him on the show. I am so looking forward to talking to Gord Depp of The Spoons. Oh, Gord's a good guy. We'll uh, we'll, we'll rope him in. I, I didn't know that when the Flock of Seagulls reformed in, what was it, 2017, he joined on board as their guitarist. Uh, there, That goes back even further. There was a tour that Pepsi did way back when. It was something, oh, there was a CD and a... Uh, a series of shows featuring their haircuts. Well, no, featuring both the spoons and, and uh flock of seagulls. And I actually wrote the liner notes for the CD. Okay. And uh, I went to see the show and, and everybody came for the spoons and moments flock of seagulls came on. Everybody left. And I stayed to the what? end. Yes. I no stayed. one stuck around for the flock of seagulls. Well, the problem was flock of seagulls had turned into an industrial band. Oh, and they were so heavy and guitar driven that I stuck around to the end just to see how many people would be, would, would remain. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, there was me, honestly. Wow, you standing there alone with your arms crossed, staring at the band. Well, I, I was up, I was up in the in, in the uh, in the balcony, and uh, it's the band finished their set. Good night, and then they just stopped and started taking down their gear. My favorite story about the flock of seagulls involves the hairstyles, because that's kind of aside from that one hit wonder song that they yeah. had. They were known for their hairstyles, and as I understand it. The reason why they all had crazy hairstyles was the front man's day job was hairstylist. Yep, that's right. And they understood the power of MTV and the music video, and they knew that they needed some sort of unique telegenic appearance, and it worked. Didn't give them staying power, though, did it? No, they had a couple of hits. There's, uh, you know, I ran. There was looking at a photograph. Uh, there was a few. They had three or four. Okay, you've mentioned decent. two. Okay, I can probably give me a third. Can you even mention a third? Space Age love song. All right, that's about it. So, so needless to say, I don't think we'll be interviewing them next week live. Okay, but Gorda be interested in, particularly considering. The Spoons was considered to be the height of the music scene in Toronto at the time. Well, they were from Burlington, which really? was, yes, that was the interesting thing. They were not from Toronto. They were from Burlington. I always got this image of them hanging out in Yorkville. Well, no, they, they played, they had to play a lot of shows in Toronto, but uh, they were originally from the west part mm. of the city uh -huh. and um, they ended up working uh, with some really interesting producers. And uh, let's just not spoil it. We'll, we'll get to that when we talk to you. Okay, so 1 p.m. Eastern Time at the Mississauga Convention Center in Toronto, Saturday, January 26th. We are going to be doing the show live to air. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have to work on an internet connection. you got to work on an internet connection if anyone is going to see it before the release date of the Wednesday. Right. So... I, I, I took up the mantle on all the tech on CES. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You're going to take up the mantle on this? If not, we'll just tether on my phone. <laughs> yeah, and, and your $12,000 phone bill. I got 15 gigs. 15 gigs? Yeah, a month. Okay, Let, let's, let's calculate this right now, because I don't think 15 gigs is going to be enough. How much does it take to stream video 720p per minute? 
Wait, 720p, what are you doing? What do you mean, what am I doing? That's the, That was what we did at CES, 720p, and not even 1080, dude. That, that was the low resolution. Okay, so standard quality 480p uses 700 megabytes per hour. Okay, so okay, we can do that. So that. Yeah, but that's standard video quality. Yeah, right, fine. We go HD to... at 720 um, uses... It'd be double that. Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's actually not because of compression. It's right. 900K. We'll be fine. Uh, megabytes per, per hour. Okay. If, if we're going to burn through your data plan, I'm fine I, with I, that. It's at the end of the month, too, so I've, I'll have lots left over. <laughs> Excellent. So if you want to come down and see how the sausages are made on the big show, hopefully we'll talk to Gord Depp um, either live at 1 o'clock or we'll pre-interview him and then play it back live on the air, so to speak. Right. In the meantime, we want to say thank you to our patrons who help make the big show possible every single week. We're pulling in $97 an episode. Oh, wow. Really? That's that's not going to pay your uh, bandwidth charge on our big... Uh, uh, no. No, it's not going to help. But uh, Silver Eye, Stefan Dubord, Stephen Landry, Steve Thermos. I don't know who Thermos is, but I'm sure Thermos is quite warm at this chilly time of year. Thomas Foster, Tim Heron, Tim Rickert, uh, TJ Webb, Tyler Bergsma, and Walter McBain are among our patrons who uh, shelled out $1 per episode to help keep the big show on the air, and so they are officially members of the world's worst intern program. It's the worst because you pay us to work on the show, don't do any actual work, and all we do is say thank you uh, in forums such as this. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I haven't slept for four days. <laughs> it's the norovirus. Uh, it's the norovirus, and before that, it was uh, my kidney stones. But anyway, I'm I'm just I'm falling apart, man. Yeah, you were like a Sony DVD player three days after the warranty expired. <laughs> it's exactly it. Subscribe to all new episodes on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play, or stream us live every Wednesday at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon. And follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcasts with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation. Uh, I heard the whole bathroom thing. Yeah, sorry about that. I signed on and thought, that's okay. Listen, nothing grosses me out because uh, not I have a norovirus. Oh, you have it at the moment? Uh, well, I'm getting over it. I caught it on Thursday. Uh, I was completely flat out by Thursday night. Friday was a complete waste of time. I thought I was going to die. I had a recovery yesterday, Saturday. But then Saturday night, it all went to hell all over again. And I've been basically existing on a banana, one banana over this entire time as well as some Earl Grey tea with honey. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I, I hate being the kind of sick where you don't want to put anything in your stomach. Oh, God. Because yeah. the, I couldn't keep water down for a while. Oh, it yeah? Was, that was terrible. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Mary Ellen said, oh, well, you should take care of, better care of yourself. And then uh, where's she? Oh, she's up in bed right now. You know why? She's got it. Oh. <laughs> it's love. Yes, that's it. We share everything in this household. Exactly. 